Testing, testing, one, two, three, 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 three. Hello and welcome back. We can't do backflips. We can't back that ass up, but we are back on Backlick Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe. That's Z-O or Z-O if you're cinemaphiles outside the, the United States. Taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. It's the 80th episode. Thank you for downloading and streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I'm going to tell you about what Zach thought of those classic movies that we watched a couple of days ago. If you like what you're about to hear, then please take time out to offer a tiny bit of support by giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can also share our show on social media. Speaking of which, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. Now, we're about to embark on a journey. We are about to continue our examination of one of the series that, or the movie that started the, the phenomenon that we're in now of superhero movies. This is the second of a great lineage of Superman movies. I don't know. I don't know if I want to call it a lineage of Superman movies because after Superman 1 and Superman 2, the original Superman movies kind of take a nosedive. And this is probably the best movie in the series. And the movie I'm talking about, of course, is Superman 2. So let's get to it. Clark Kent splits his time being a mild-mannered yet talented staff writer for the Daily Planet newspaper and as Kal-El, better known as Superman, the world's most powerful being, using his abilities to protect the Earth's people from danger, all while trying to manage a possible romance with his fellow reporter Lois Lane, Clark thought that he was the last survivor of his home planet of Krypton. But he learns that he is catastrophically wrong as three of Krypton's most dangerous criminals escape from their imprisonment and begin the dual goals of their conquest of Earth and taking their revenge out on Kal-El slash Superman, who is the son of their jailer, Jor-El. This will be Superman's greatest challenge. He must face three foes who are as powerful as he. Superman 2 was released June 19, 1981, produced by Dove Mead Films, Film Export AG, and International Film Productions. It grossed over $108 million in the U.S. and Canada on a $54 million budget. It had great reviews. Starring Christopher Reeve as Superman slash Clark Kent slash Kal-El. He's been in Monsignor, The Bostonians, and Street Smart. Margot Kidder as Lois Lane played in Phantom 2040, Boston Common, and Smallfield. She was, as you can see, she was a prolific television actor, and she's still active today. Phantom 2040 was actually an animated series where she played a voice. Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. He's been in The Poseidon Adventure, The Quick and the Dead, and Behind Enemy Lines, and countless films that you are no doubt familiar with. Ned Beatty as Otis. He's been in Captain America, 1990, Rudy, and Radio Land Murders. What? You didn't know that there was a Captain America movie in 1990? Yes, there was. And it was every bit as cheesy and corny as you can possibly imagine. 
Valerie Perrine as Eve Techmacher or Tessmacher. She's been in The End of the Bar, The Amateurs, and Redirecting Eddie. Jackie Cooper as Perry White, a prolific TV actor who's been in Mobile One, Police Story, and Murder, She Wrote. Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen. He's been in Jack Snyder's Justice League, Coach Carter, and That Thing You Do. Terrence Stapp as General Zod. He's been in The Limey, Young Guns, and The Adjustment Bureau. Sarah Douglas as Ursa. She's been on Falcon Crest, Green Lantern, the animated series, and Heavy Gear, the animated series. She, she's been in a fair number of animated series. Jack O'Halloran as Non. He's been in Farewell, My Lovely, Dragnet from 1987, and King Kong from 1976. Directed by Richard Lester and Richard Donner, who is uncredited. Richard Lester, on his part, has directed movies such as A Hard Day's Night, The Bed-Sitting Room, and The Three Musketeers. Richard Donner had completed 75% of filming as he directed both Superman and Superman 2 simultaneously, but budget overruns and conflicts with the producers caused him to be fired after he finished the first Superman. He was replaced by Richard Lester, who restocked much of the film. Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut, was released in 2006. So uh, Richard Lester is actually known for making more comedic type movies such as The Three Musketeers. And I believe this is The Three Musketeers from the 90s that starred, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, but I can't, Q for Sutherland, that's his name. And uh, and that, that was a very comedic movie. And a lot of, you can see a lot of the comic, comedy come out in this movie, in Superman 2. This movie was written by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and Mario Puzo. Siegel and Schuster created Superman for DC Comics. Mario Puzo, of course, wrote The Godfather, Earthquake, and The Cotton Club. David Newman and Leslie Newman had did the screenplay. They are also credited for Bonnie and Clyde, Santa Claus, the movie. Or Bonnie and Clyde and Santa Claus, the movie. You know what I mean. Finally, Tom Makiewicz. I'm going to go with Makiewicz. He is also... Uh, have an uncredited role for the screenplay. He's also done work for The Man with the Golden Gun and Live and Let Die. The music was given to us by Ken Thorne. He's also written music for Inspector Crusoe, The Evil That Men Do, and Finders Keepers. So that's it for the opening credits. And now we're going to switch over to some announcements. Uh... So uh, go ahead, check out our website. That's the announcement. <laughs> check out our website at backlickcinema.com or backlickcinema.com slash shop. And you can check out the designs we have, some of our merch. And uh, you can also check out our teespring.com or tpublic.com pages that are links smack dab on backlickcinema.com. We're going to skip right over to talk about our favorite parts. And welcome back. We're at our favorite parts. So regarding our favorite parts of the film, Zach and me, we just generally enjoy the cheesiness of the film. 
the the coiness, the coininess of it, the the poor aging of the special effects, the the uh how Superman got like extra powers, the 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 whole construction of the story was a bit off. We we enjoyed all of that. So let me get into some of the specifics of Superman. The first thing I noticed, one one of the things that right now today seems a little bit uh superfluous or corny was that in the opening credits they we get a recap of the entire first Superman movie. Given that this is supposed to be uh reflecting the events that occur right after Superman, a continuation of the story. They they give us the entirety of the story of the first Superman movie in kind of a montage, in sequential order, telling us the story of Superman. It it's kind of tiresome, especially after you just watched the first movie recently. But I think what it was is that uh this movie came out in the 1980s. So back in that time, there there weren't a lot of people that had VCRs. Movies weren't released to television in a six-month time frame. It could take years for a movie to go from the theater to the television. And in fact, what usually happens is that the, the theaters would re-release movies quite often. Like the movie Enter the Dragon, that, that was released several times uh, after its original release. So Star Wars was released, was released multiple times. So I don't know if Superman was ever re-released in theaters, but I knew, but I I do know that it took a long time for it to go to television. And like I said, most people didn't have VCRs. VCRs were extremely expensive in the early 80s. So um, most people had not seen Superman since its original release a few years prior. So hence you have the the flashback sequence. So so nowadays it's a little it seems like a little much, but it's understandable back in the day. Even even though I have to also have to point out that there there really weren't too many movies that did this. Uh, they usually uh, the movie would just move right on into the story of the the sequel. So the other thing is that uh, they had a lot of great lines in this movie. They, I think the the script was pretty funny. So. Um, like for example, there's a conversation between Perry White and Clark Kent. They're in his office, and Perry White is trying to tell Clark about this terror terrorist event that's happening in, in Paris. And for whatever reason, Clark slash Superman doesn't own a television, so he has no idea that there's a terrorist attack that's going on in Paris. You know, something where the terrorist has something like a hydrogen bomb or a, a, a hydrogen bomb that's capable of destroying the entire city of Paris and how they got their hands on a bomb is no, who could say for sure. But this is something that Superman should know and does not. It, it could be that, you know, he wants to, when he's at home, he just wants to isolate and unplug from the world. He doesn't want to be tempted to go around and saving everything that needs to be saved because he needs to get his rest too. So maybe that's why he doesn't have the news because if he had the news, then he'd be compelled to solve every problem. But there you have it. Clark doesn't know that this is going on. So what I'm getting to is that um, when Perry noticed that Clark is, seems to be unplugged, he says, Clark, get your head, out, get your head out of the clouds. And I thought that was funny. It's, it's, it's a fun reference to Superman. Uh, 
So, so that was fun. And while Perry, uh, while Perry is talking to Clark, he is working on his headline. He's not using a computer. He's basically using uh, basically a cut and paste cut and paste method to figure out what headline he's going to use on a newspaper. So, um, in one part, he has a headline that he's compiling that looks like it says like uh, Paris threatened by terrorists, and then. Uh, he kind of changed the headline to Paris destroyed, right? And or saying that Superman might save Paris. He has another headline, Paris saved. So it was just funny to see him working on his headlines. Not really, it almost like he doesn't care what happened to Paris. He's more concerned with what he's going to put as a headline of his newspaper. And uh, since this uh, whole scene is taking place in Paris, you, you would want people in Paris to be speaking French. And I guess because this was like a comic book film in the 1980s, they decided that that was a little bit too much. And so pretty much everybody in so-called French were speaking English in a so-called French accent. I don't know how authentic that these accents were supposed to be, but I felt for my part that they really should have been speaking in French. And they did shoot some of this stuff in Europe. So I don't think there was any reason why they couldn't have shot some of this in France and hired French actors to to play these roles, speaking French, and they could have had subtitles. But I don't know, maybe they didn't think people were mature enough to handle subtitles. So for most of the part, there were some people speaking French and there were some uses of subtitles. But for the most part, everybody was speaking English. And like in modern films, I don't think they're going to do that. In modern filmmaking, if they're going to shoot on location in another country, they will tend to shoot in the native the native language and use subtitles as much as possible until they get back to an English-speaking country. So it's kind of jarring to see this, but this film was, like I said, in the early 80s, and they, they weren't all too concerned with that. I, I'm not even sure they shot this in, Par in Paris. Uh, you, there are some outside shots, but then a lot of the scenery seems to be shot on the soundstage. But um, as I said, it it, it kind of it took me out of the film a little bit, but that's only because of my modern film sensibilities. And I also have to take into account of how it was uh, filmed back then. The the One of the best special effects is Superman flying to and into the, the Eiffel Tower, which is where the terrorist event is taking place. The terrorists have taken this hydrogen bomb to the top of Eiffel Tower and is threatening to detonate it unless they get something or other. So I guess they're asking for money. And just so you know, they, they happen to be Frenchmen. They're, they're not outside terrorists. They're domestic terrorists making threats to basically destroy the city. And I'm guessing they're after money. I, I forgot already. So anyways... Uh, and then so Superman flies in. He uh, catches one of the Paris elevators that Lois Lane have to be trapped in under trapped under the terrorists. They don't they don't know Lois Lane is there. They're they're just carrying out their plot. And one one of the things involves uh, cutting the elevator and let it slam to the ground. I guess that's to detonate the bomb. I don't know. I, I forgot already. Anyways. <laughs> Superman comes and and saves the elevator from crashing and also saves Lois Lane and in doing so he he lets Lois Lane off the elevator and then takes the elevator into space tosses it as far as he can and the 
hydrogen bomb explodes. It's it's a big enough explosion to kind of knock him off balance. It's also a big enough explosion to destroy the imprisonment of the three Kryptonians who happen to be in Earth's orbit for some reason or in the orbit or anywhere near the solar system. They just so happen to be in the solar system. I don't know why the, the Phantom Zone object is in the solar system, but it is. It could have been anywhere. It could have been literally anywhere in the universe, but somehow it's it's near Earth. And and the the hydrogen bomb shatters the Phantom Zone, freeing the three Kryptonians. Uh which which leads to other fun scenes. But but uh I'm I'm gonna go um back to Paris because Superman seems to have uh a really crazy love triangle with Lois Lane. Like as Superman, he knows that Lois Lane is attracted to her. So he's trying to be, he's trying to put Lois Lane off as Superman at the same time, trying to ingratiate himself with Lois Lane as Clark Kent. And I know this, this so-called love triangle exists in the comics, but it's so crazy that Clark Kent is doing this or, or that Superman is doing this. I feel like in this movie, his real personality is Superman and his costume is Clark Kent and that he's, he wants to um, ingratiate himself as his costume character to Lois Lane to attract her to him is, it's crazy. He wants to start a relationship as Clark Kent. I'm guessing he feels that it's easier to be Clark Kent with Lois Lane instead of Superman with Lois Lane. Uh, I guess the the logic being that if if people suspect that Superman and Lois were an item, then Lois would be put in danger. So he wants to start a relationship with her as Clark Kent instead. The only problem is that people already kind of figured out that <laughs> Lois Lane and Superman are kind of sweet on each other. People, or, or at the very least, Lois Lane loves Superman. People people figured that out already. It's it's too late for that. There's no need for this love triangle. So back in space, uh, another neat part is when the three criminals, they, since they're near Earth, they, they go to the moon first. They see the moon. They go to the moon. There happen to be astronauts and cosmonauts on the moon. And, you know, they immediately start uh, attacking the cosmonauts and talking in space and uh, full communication I know it's been said that there is a slight atmosphere on the moon, but I don't know if there is enough atmosphere for vocalization, but they're full on talking because they were like, if Star Wars says we don't care about, uh, we we don't care about physics, then I guess everybody is like, yeah, we don't care anything about physics, right? (laughs) At least with Star Wars, you can imagine that you're hearing the sound of the spaceship from the the pilot's point of view because you you would hear something if you're inside the craft i'm i'm guessing maybe you you could hear the engine roar from the inside of the craft with the vibration of the craft you can imagine that and you couldn't hear it from the outside but um it's like rarely do science fiction films have people actually talking in space because there's, there's no air but like i said that's that's when you go we don't care about science to to hell with physics or whatever so uh, I-, I liked that they immediately start to build the personalities of of the three criminals, particularly Ursa. 
because one of the things that you kind of notice about Ursa is that she's attracted to to badges and she likes to collect stuff. So she sees one of the badges of the cosmonaut and she immediately rips it off and somehow affixes it to her to her clothes. Right? She she loves this stuff. She she's kind of a fanboy of of objects. And and she does this collection throughout the movie. She see she she uh, she sees a a sheriff's badge and she rips it off and she puts it in her costume. And I think she sees a couple other things and she rips those off. And so by the end of the movie, she's got these badges like just placed in various places on her uh, upper torso because because she like that that's her jam. She likes that. Um, and then after they finish harassing the cosmonauts they they hear the cosmonauts had been communicating with houston so they go to planet houston they go to planet houston to to conquer the world the world of houston in this solar system i i thought i thought that they went that they wanted to go to houston to conquer the planet houston was hilarious another great scenes or series of scenes is the whole thing with lex luthor in jail it was pretty nice to to see Lex Luthor as as bald Lex Luthor that's pretty awesome and he's in jail and he has Otis with him Otis is still bumbling Lex is still but despite the prison uniform he's still wearing an ascot because he that's his jam he has to have his ascot and so uh them bumbling in jail or prison that that was fun the, the whole the whole scene of it was fun. Otis still being Otis. They they get rescued by Miss Tessmacher. And she's in the film for a hot minute. And somehow Otis gets left behind in jail. He, he, Lex has decided he's had enough of Otis. And, and he basically, even though Otis helped him escape, he leaves Otis in jail. So that, uh, so, so that was cool. And then for the rest of the movie... Lex Luthor is presumably wearing a wig, even when he's being flown by a supervillain, you know, in the windy air, uh, his, his wig is still affixed to his bald cap or his bald head. I'm, I'm assuming that he has whatever he's using to affix his, his wig to his bald head is, is probably some, some excellent adhesive that that's it probably from his own creation. He probably developed it because he's, a criminal genius. Also, that's another thing about Lex Luthor. He, he refers to himself as a criminal genius. He um, and he wants to align when he finds out that there are other super criminals on the planet. You know, he figures that you know they're as devious and evil as he is, and that he needs to align himself with them. But you know, real people don't refer to themselves as villains, so it. it it made this movie feel especially now you see where the word comic bookie comes from. I hate the word comic bookie, but you see where that word comes from because this is the most comic book movie that you'll probably ever see if you if you never seen um or if if you haven't seen the original Superman or Superman 2. But this is especially true for Superman 2 because this is this is not the dialogue that the real people use is not really based on the real world. There's a lot of things about this movie that is shouting from the rooftop. This is a comic book movie without being too campy, without being as campy as Batman from 1966 is not that campy, but it's, it's, com it's campy enough. It's leaning heavily 
and to its its origins as as comic book uh property. So continuing with Luthor, being the genius that he is, he figures out that Superman has a frequency or something, some alpha waves, and he, he finds some uh, presence of strong alpha waves coming from the North Pole. So he decides that he and Miss Tessmacher are going to explore the North Pole to find out what those, what's emanating, what's creating those alpha waves. And they find the Fortress of Solitude and they just walk right in. And I'm like, wow, no security at the Fortress of Solitude, like nothing, not even a regular door. Now, if you're familiar with the comics, Superman has a Fortress of Solitude that only that's very difficult to access. I don't want to say that only he can access it, but really, he has a giant key that he puts into a giant lock. Like the key is the size of a small dwelling. And he puts the key in the lock, he turns the key, and that's how he gets into the Fortress of Solitude. Basically, you have to be you have to be able to fly and have super strength to access the Fortress of Solitude. But in this movie, people just can just walk right in. I mean, like, why would why wouldn't you have security? Why wouldn't you have a door? Why wouldn't you have like a regular door <laughs> to and lock the door? Like you I mean, I realize that it's in a remote place, but you know, there are people that go to remote places, right? And it's not a hidden fortress of solitude. It's very obvious when, when you get to that area. So um, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe have a lock and key. I'm sure that after this movie that there is a lock and key, but I don't think that we see the fortress in this movie series ever again. So um, there are lots of shenanigans with the, the Kryptonian criminals. So And they can only be described as shenanigans. I think that uh, in the hands of a director who wanted to take this movie more seriously, they I think the, the criminals are always serious, which is great. The, the criminals are never campy. They are always serious. Terra Stamp is always, like, seeing his performance, you would think that he was in something like in a... In a uh, a hard drama, something like a, I don't know, a crime, uh, a crime drama or a, a a courtroom drama. That's that's how he plays it, and his the other actors are basically following suit. So Ursa, uh, you know, plays this. Uh, she's a little bit more curious about the world, and uh, Zod is is basically uh, a mute. He plays it like uh, someone that's on the spectrum of a. Uh, or maybe he's uh, on an autistic spectrum, or maybe he's uh, or a Kryptonian equivalent. So basically, he he has more trouble using some of his powers. It, it takes him longer to learn it. And I think that I think one of the smart things they did was that it was their powers are, are they don't come in all at once. They they they're not instantly invulnerable, or it kind of waves in and out. There's a part of there's a scene where um, when they all three, they land on the planet Earth. And one, one thing that kind of bothered me is that it seemed like General Zod had has never seen water before. He lands in water and then he raises himself up so that he can walk on water. And he refers to it as a curious surface, like he has never seen water. And we, as we all know, water is the basis for life. You know, we, what is he? How has he not ever seen liquid? Like it's like he's surprised with liquid, and that's kind of bothersome. I, I think that 
they they shouldn't have put that in there because it it kind of makes not it it goes from being campy to being stupid. Like everybody knows what water is. Don't don't be stupid. But anyways, so when they land, but aside from that, when they land on Earth, the uh, there's a part where um they're you know kind of walking around and Ursa sees a snake and she's curious about it. So she picks it up and the snake bites her and she feels it. Like she reacts to being bitten by a snake. She's in pain and then she burns it with her heat vision. And on one sense, it could be like, well, there, the story is, well, what am I saying? What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that they're, they're being incons- inconsistent with their powers. But I think that because they just landed on earth and they're experiencing, they know that their bodies are changing. They, they remark on how the yellow sun is is changing their bodies and that they're able to do things that they wouldn't be able to do on Krypton. So they're they're cognizant of this. But I think that it's showing that their their powers are are basically kind of coming in and out. They're wavering. Like and I think an example of that is Zod not being able to use his heat vision. So they're affecting him on different levels. But they're they eventually Zod is eventually able to use his heat vision and Ursa eventually becomes invulnerable. It seems that uh well i've been saying zod i meant non non is the the one that doesn't speak and is probably on this, the spectrum of some sort of mental instability or mental disorder or autistic or something or the like i said the kryptonian equivalent anyways so it's non that can't use his heat vision until later on and zod doesn't seem to have any issue using any of his powers he's he's a general he's uh more he he's more, I don't know, thoughtful or more observant, I guess, than the others. So he's able to use his power sooner. Um, I'm still guessing at this point. Anyways, <laughs> there is a problem where uh, it kind of it kind of reflects on on what we're seeing in in today's world with uh, the police and and how they react to threats or whatever. So. The, the three super criminals dress funny. They're walking in small town. They're, they're walking on the road because why wouldn't you? If you weren't from around here, you wouldn't know that roads were for cars and sidewalks were for where people go. So they're just walking three abreast on the road, side by side, just walking up this road. The other thing is that since this is like, this is a, a very rural area in Texas, um, they... They don't know, um, well, there are no sidewalks, so there really is no place else to walk but the road. So they're walking on the road, and then a police car comes upon them, and they, um, and the police tries to get them to move out the way, and and the criminals don't reciprocate. Like, Zod, as far as Zod is concerned, he's he's already ruling planet Earth. He just hasn't, he just hasn't told them yet. So, <laughs> so they're all walking, and the the problem is that the first thing the police do is they bring out a shotgun to tell the people to get out the road. So what are they going to do? Are they going to shoot these? The police don't know that these are superhero, super powers, super, what do you call them? Super villains. The, the police don't know that. They're just regular people dressed funny. So your first response is to bring out a shotgun, a shotgun. What are you going? You going to shoot these people for not getting out the road? That that's kind of wild. That's that's kind of an extreme response. It's a very extreme response, but that but that's what they do. And um, and immediately, uh, they did the super criminals deduce that they're being under attack, and and they have different powers. They, uh, Zod has uh, not only does he have heat vision because when one of the officers point a shotgun at him, 
he heats it up super hot and the guy lets go of the shotgun and then he has telekinesis so he pulls the gun to him and just starts examining it and he pulls the trigger with the shotgun pointed at himself and it has no effect on him whatsoever which was brilliant because he's just like curious like ooh, what is this thing and then you know they they start harassing the police and then they continue on their way when i say harass they they really kind of mess them up and toss them around they don't the super criminals don't kill the police but they, they really put them in a bad way and, and they continue walking wherever they was going and and that was kind of a fun scene but it, it's also interesting commentary on police work and and what's going on in today's world let me jump back over to what's happening with uh clark kent and lois lane for some reason that is never explained they are on assignment in the niagara falls area so i'm not sure if they're in the new york side or the canadian side and they are supposed to be posing as a married couple and this is where clark kent is trying to put the moves on Lois. He's trying to, and and he does he does it hard too. So there's actually one scene where uh, a boy is playing around on the edge of Niagara Falls and he falls in, and Clark Kent kind of runs away and then he goes to rescue the boy, and and then after he rescues him, he uh, sets the boy down and he starts to fly away and Lois is trying to call him. It's like, hey, it's Lois. It's Lois Lane. And Superman totally ignores her, even though he obviously can hear her. He totally ignores her and flies off. And it comes back as Clark Kent. Now, Lois Lane is already believing that Superman is Clark Kent. She had seen him remove his... Uh, she's seen what he looked like without his glasses. He had, uh, he had to take his glasses off to clean it off. And she saw what his face looked like. And she noticed that he looked remarkably like Superman. So all this time, she begins to suspect that he's Superman. And the the thing is, there's no reason for her to suspect that he's Superman because Superman doesn't wear a mask and glasses, like who would use glasses as a mask? But this is the conclusion that she jumps to. She she knows that it seems like uh, Superman is, is around when Clark isn't around. But you can say that about a lot of people. Well, I'm not going to get into that. So anyway, uh, she concocts this thing where she jumps off of the railing near the, uh, an area of the Niagara Falls. And she says she's convinced that Super Clark will turn into Superman and Superman show, will show up. She's convinced that Superman will save her. So Clark knows this. He ain't trying to fall for the old okie doke. So he's trying to rescue her as Clark Kent. So he's along this railing. He's as she's floating down a river, he's following her down a river and, and trying to call out for help. And then he sees this branch. And so because she is, you know, being pulled by the river, she doesn't notice when he uh, shoots a heat ray, his eye, what is it called? Laser eye, heat sense, heat vision. There we go. That's what it's called. He, he shoots his heat vision at this uh, branch, knock it down where she can, she can grab it. So she grabs a branch and then she gets pulled into this area where she can get on land. And then Clark helps her out and he, he throws himself into the water as like a bumbling because he's a bumbling. He's a bumbling person. So he's trying to maintain his Clark persona. And in this way, he kind of throws her off that he's Superman. 
And then um, there's this other part where still being, still pretending to be this married couple, I still don't know why they're in the Niagara Falls area. I don't know what they're supposed to be investigating. So they're there. And um, Clark, you know, still doing his bumbling act. He, there's a fireplace or a fire pit in the middle of the highly, uh, what do you call it? It's it's kind of a romantic suite. So in, a, in this hotel, so they, he falls into this fire pit and, um, and his hand is obviously in the fire. And then Clark tries to pull his hand to his body and hide his hands from her. But it's like, you know, you, you just put your hand in fire. So it should obviously be burned. And so she grabs his hand and there enough is it's not burned. And, and the gig is up. He tries to play it off. He says, no, Lois, don't be ridiculous. And he realizes he, he, he's done. He's, he's been figured out. And then he's, he, he wonders why he did that. You know, why did he trip and fall into the fire pit? Cause it's, this is not something that he does. He's, as Superman, he's not tripping all over the place. He only does that as Clark Kent. So he wonders why he did that. And she speculates that maybe he wanted to do that. And that's probably true. He wants to get with Lois Lane, but he wants to get with her as Clark Kent. So, but, and he over, the problem is that he overplayed his hand. He, he overplayed it and he got found out. He, he messed around and found out. And so now he has to, he feels like he has to explain everything to um lois lane so he decides to take her to the fortress of solitude you know lex luthor is long gone by then so he goes to the fortress like basically tells her everything they have a grand old time and while while they're there he decides to ask uh his mother excuse me he decides to ask his mother you know uh how can he get with this human this human woman now you'll notice that uh that Marlon Brando, well Jorel Marlon Brando is not in this movie at all whatsoever. Not even in the flashback scenes. Like when they do the flashback scenes, there it's just his mother. It's just his mother carrying him in uh and while the earth earthquakes are going around in Quipton. It's just his mother putting him in his spaceship, and it's just his mother waving goodbye to him as as his spaceship is launched into outer space. There's no sign of Jero. Uh, he calls out to his father, but his father doesn't answer. It is, he's not there. And we'll get, I know that I mentioned it in the previous episode when we covered Superman, but it, the the long and short of it is um, Jor-El, uh, I'm sorry, Marlon Brando decides that he did not want to do Superman 2. He had a fight with the producers. He felt like he wasn't getting enough money, even though he got way more money than A, anybody else in the movie, and B, he got more money than what his performance required, given that he was only there in the first movie for like 10 minutes, and he was going to be in the second movie for a few more minutes, but he decided he did not want to return. So I think all of his parts were replaced by, uh, I think Superman's mother's name, Laura, or... You know what? I can't remember. Anyway, all of his all of his parts were replaced with Superman's mother. So whenever he needs to ask uh, the computer a question, his mother shows up to answer those questions. It happened when Lex Luthor was in the Fortress of Solitude. He got a bunch of information on Superman. So too, does Superman go and get uh, 
asks his mother about what he wants to, you know, about having a relationship with Lois Lane. So she tells him, well, these are recordings, by the way. These are recordings that his parents had made with, and and I guess that, that the parents have, record, have anticipated his questions. And uh, so they they answer his questions that they anticipate he'll ask. So knowing that he was going to ask this question, they said that he was going to have to become one of them. He, he will have to give up his powers irreversibly in order to be with a human. This Now, there's no explanation for this. There's no, there's no reason given as to why he has to give up all of his superpowers in order to be a regular person. And this is actually optional. He doesn't have to give up his heart. This, this is just advice. That his mother's giving her, but like she says, he has to do it. But does he have to? Does he have to do it? Does he have to give up his powers? Maybe uh, she's afraid that you know he would accidentally crush her if if they're in bed together. Maybe I don't. I don't know what the deal is, but that that was what she was saying. So um, there's a chamber that would um, somehow basically re- remove Superman's powers. So I think they did this by using the red sun uh, radiation to remove Superman's powers. This is kind of a plot hole. And in the comics, the uh, you, you can remove Superman's power if he's in the vicinity of a red star or if somehow you captured red star's radiation and you, and you shine it on him, then he will lose his powers. But as soon as he goes back into... A atmosphere or in a vicinity of a yellow star, then he will get his powers back. So in this movie, it, it kind of messes that up. That what they intended to do was they what they intended to um, introduce a, a different form of kryptonite. I can't remember the type of kryptonite it does in the comics, especially back in the old days. They had a bunch of different kryptonite colors with various effects on Superman. Uh, we all know Green Superman makes Superman sick and weak and could eventually kill him. There's Red Kryptonite that, um, what does it do? Red Kryptonite has unpredictable effects on Superman. So it might give Superman four arms. It might make Superman super tall. It it might give him a second head. It has various mutation effects on Superman. But as as soon as you take away the Red Kryptonite, he'll go back to normal. There's there's another type of kryptonite that permanently removes Superman's powers. And so this is what they were going to use in the movie, but they chose not to. They decided and said to go with the red, uh, the red sun radiation. But as I said, it doesn't make a ton of sense because the radiation in and of itself doesn't permanently remove powers, but whatever, whatever. So this is what they're going with in the movie. So, uh, he decides to give up his powers to um, to be with Lois Lane. And this obviously has a bunch of symbolic, um, s- symbolic, rep- uh, a symbolic of sacrifice, the sacrifice that he's making for a woman or he's giving up. He's the world is giving up or Superman and so that Superman can, so that Clark can be with Lois or something. I'm not good with metaphors and stuff. Usually I read about this stuff and I tell you about it, but I didn't read about this. I, I didn't do the research on, or I didn't do in-depth research on Superman to, to, to tell you the symbolism that all of this is supposed to represent. So uh, he comes out a regular dude 
and they they showed the symbolization. He goes in and in this chamber in his super suit, this the chamber takes away his powers and he walks out in regular clothes. He's slightly different in appearance from both Clark Kent and Superman. His his hairstyle is is different because in, on when he was doing his dual identities, his as Clark Kent, his hair was parted one way, and as Superman, it was parted another way. Uh, Clark Kent slouches. Superman stands up straight. Clark Kent uh, has a stutter and he kind of bumbles around. Superman does not. And with this new identity, as uh, he's basically Clark Kent without Superman, his he has a different hairstyle, but he he stands up straight and he doesn't stutter or bumble around as he did as dual identity Clark Kent. So this is kind of a new persona. So they decide, you know, they're done. They go and they're going to try to live a regular life. And while this is all going on, the super villains are doing all kinds of terrible things. They're, they're wrecking havoc in this small Houston town. They're, the town people are trying to attack them. And they're being burned with heat vision they're being tossed around with telekinesis they're being thrown through walls they're just causing all kinds of havoc and uh, and uh this this is also another nice part like really anytime the, the three super criminals are just causing havoc it's it's it, these are the best parts of the movie so they they're they're causing all kinds of havoc at the they go to the white house they're you know smashing up the white house uh, with Lex Luthor's help, because by now Lex Luthor is is helping them out. One of the things they they're doing, they do well. Zod Zod is famous for this. Zod finds the president, and he finds uh, he asks the president, the man sitting at the presidential desk. He asks the president, "Who's the president?" And the guy says, "I am." He says, "Come before me and kneel." And the guy goes up and he kneels, and Zod says, "You're not the president because the, a leader doesn't kneel that quickly." And so the real president comes up. He's being hidden by a secret service. And he gives this kind of a speech. He's like, what I do, I do for the world. And he kneels before Zod because Zod is always, he's about that. He's telling everybody, kneel before Zod, kneel, kneel before Zod. And it's been memed ever since. Like in, in whatever media that you see later on, you get the kneel before Zod moment. I'm, did did that happen in Man of Steel? I don't remember that happening in Man of Steel, but if it didn't happen in Man of Steel, I feel like that's a missed opportunity. Anyway, um, so um, they're causing all types of havoc. And um, going back to the Fortress of Solitude, they, uh, they all come down, Lois and Clark, and they end up at this small bar and Clark gets beat up. Uh, did this dude, there's a dude, he's, he's at the, it's not really a bar. It's more like a diner. So dude's at the diner and, and he's caused, he's being a dick and he's harassing Lois Lane and Clark Kent tries to defend Lois Lane. But, uh, even though, uh, he's, you know, Clark is a well-built dude. He doesn't know how to fight. He's, as Superman, he's so reliant on his powers that he doesn't actually know how to fight. So 
this dude just kind of beats the crap out of Clark Kent. And Clark Kent is surprised. Like now he's vulnerable the first time he's bleeding. He sees his own blood for the first time. He's he's in shock uh, how how weak he is. And he instantly regrets giving up his superpowers. So uh, and then that's when he sees the news, because if he doesn't have a television in his apartment in Metropolis, he also doesn't have a television at the Fortress of Solitude. So at this diner, he finds out for the first time that the world is basically being taken over by the, the three super criminals. And. This is when he sees a special announcement about a president who says that, you know, he has, on the behalf of the entire world, he is surrendering to General Zod. And then at the end of his announcement, he cries out for Superman to come and save them. And now he figures out he needs to try to get his powers back somehow. He doesn't know how, but somehow he needs to get his powers back, even though his mom told him that it was irreversible. So. He goes back to the Fortress of Solitude alone. For some reason, Lois does not follow him. That's weird that she would just let him walk up to the Fortress of Solitude alone. She has the car that could take them most of the way. <laughs> He's walking up to the wherever in the Northern Hemisphere the Fortress of Solitude is. And that's, that's pretty wild. Uh, and, you know... I presume that he hitchhiked some of the way, but there's one scene where he holds up his thumb to hitchhike from a truck driver and the, the truck doesn't stop. But still, that that's pretty wild that that had happened. It, a, lo a lot of women just seem to disappear in this movie. So um, even when um, Lex comes down from the North Pole with the help of Miss Tessmacher, you don't see Miss Tessmacher for the rest of of the movie. There's no explanation for this. Don't know why that happened. She's just not there. She's not with Lex when uh, he approaches the super criminals at the White House to try to broker a deal. He try to he uh he knows that uh Superman is kind of a specter and but Superman hasn't made an appearance. So they're the super criminals aren't really concerned with him. They're kind of bored. They've at this point, they've ruled the world for three weeks and they're just kind of just lounging in the White House because the world is just carrying on without them. So it's like they don't make any demands. They don't ask for any tributes. They're just sitting in that White House, bored out of their mind. They, they could have done that anywhere without trying to conquer the world. So it's what was the point of, of world conquest? Who knows? So anyways, Lex Luthor approaches them. And he offers them Superman. So they're intrigued by this because some kind of way they figured out that Superman and Juro was the same person. I believe it's because Lex Luthor found out from the Fortune of Solitude. So they go to the Daily Planet and they wreck havoc there and they kidnap Lois Lane because Lex knows and pretty much everybody knows that Superman has a special relationship with Lois Lane. And Ursa actually refers to Lois Lane as Superman's favorite pet. And to try to um, garner Superman's attention, they try, they basically cause havoc in Metropolis. They're wrecking everything. They're, they're just destroying stuff and creating havoc just to get Superman's attention. And then Superman shows up and, to fight them. And this, all, this entire sequence is great. So, you're probably wondering how 
how does Clark Kent get his powers back? They don't actually explain it, but what they imply is that there is there is a green crystal. So in the original Superman movie, Clark Kent, as a young man, finds this green crystal, and with this crystal, he decides to leave the farm, and the crystal is basically calling him to go up north. When he gets up north, he tosses the crystal in this barren place and the crystal creates the fortress of solitude essentially essentially all by itself so this is kind of a, a creation tool so i suspect that uh because the crystal didn't get destroyed when he lost his powers he uses the crystal to recreate the chamber that took away his powers they don't show this but this is heavily implied so he's back as Superman. He starts to fight the supervillain. This is a pretty good fight. It's not a great fight scene, but it was great for that time. And I remember the feelings I had watching that fight back when I, I first saw the movie. So I don't think I saw this movie in theaters. I only saw the television version of this movie. And I got more about that in the trivia. But the television version has is slightly different from the theatrical version. So this watching that I just had was the first time I've seen the theatrical the theatrical version, which is a little bit shorter. So, anyways, they had uh, so he has this neat fight. Uh, Ursha, uh, I like the way she calls out Superman because she says Superman. There's one time she says that, and she tosses uh, what do you call that thing? That the flat thing that uh, the plate cover that covers the street manhole cover. She tosses the manhole cover at Superman like a disc and, and, you know, flies him into a wall or whatever. It, it It's a really good scene. There's a scene where uh, him, Superman, and Non, the big one, ends up under the streets in the sewers of the, of the, of the metropolis and they're fighting and their punches and, and, and impacts are causing earthquakes in metropolis. And finally, you see non flying out because Superman had punched them up into the into the sky. So that was a neat scene. Uh, a, a lot of this was was neat seeing. It's it's neat now. It's not it's not great now, but it's just neat. And so it gets to the point where uh, Superman is kind of knocked out, and the supervillains continue to do to just cause havoc. They uh, one of the last things they do they start just blowing this super wind, this super strong wind. They all three side by side, blowing the super wind down the street, you know, just blowing everybody down the street. And then Superman kind of wakes up and he gets up and he sees, you know, they're blowing the super wind, but instead of re-engaging with the fight, he flies away. People are disappointed with Superman to call him a coward, but I think he flies away because that fight that they're having in the city is causing harm to the people and to the city itself. So he doesn't want to cause more harm. This is a huge criticism of Man of Steel, where they're fighting in the city and people are getting hurt. Like Superman is fighting um, Zod in the city and Man of Steel and people are super upset about it. But my feeling is that, that the heroes are always fighting in the city in the comics. And you can't always choose your battlegrounds. Like you, you want to draw your villain away from the city, but that's not always possible. And I think in Man of Steel, it simply wasn't possible to draw Zod away from the city. But in um, in Superman 2, Superman finds a way to draw Zod out. He basically feels that if he disengages, then they will stop. Uh, they will stop fighting. 
And that's basically what happens. Or it could have went another way. They could have totally destroyed Metropolis. But fortunately, that didn't happen. They they basically go back to being bored. Lex Luthor offers to show them where the Fortress of Solitude is. So they grab Lois and all, they all three fly to, well, they grab Lois and Lex Luthor and they fly to the Fortress of Solitude. Superman is hanging out and uh, now he's on his home turf. So one of the things he does, one of the first things he does is he, he rips off a cellophane version of his S symbol off of his, you know, the symbol of hope off of his chest and throws it at Nam and it becomes like a large cellophane wrapper and temporarily uh, it temporarily takes Nam out of the fight. The funny thing about this is that I like this scene. A lot of people hate this scene, but I actually like this scene because people like to think that, you know, it gives him a power that he doesn't have, but this isn't actually a power. This is a gadget. And Superman is known for using gadgets, especially when he's in the Fortress of Solitude. He, he's used gadgets before, and a lot of his gadgets are really ridiculous, especially in the Golden Age eras of comics. Like Superman has this spaceship with fists on the outside in the front of the spaceship, a, a rocket ship with metal fists on the front of the spaceships. Um Crazy, crazy contraptions. He has metal suits at the Fortress, you know, a battle tech suits, uh, mech suits at the Fortress of Solitude. He has Superman clone androids at the Fortress of Solitude. He he has a lot of crazy gadgets. See, when he gets to the Fortress of Solitude, he's like Batman. So um, the fight ensues. Uh, uh, Superman, he does everybody has got new powers there's a power that um the criminals have that they point their fingers at superman and shoot some kind of white beam at superman that he captures with his hands and is able to reflect it back on the criminals it's kind of weird don't know what this beam is don't don't know if it's cutting beam or it's a heat beam or it's a freeze beam don't exactly know what this beam is but this is a new a new power that they decided to give the kryptonians Another new thing that they do is that they uh, they do this thing where they can teleport. Like Superman does it for us. He teleports from to various areas in the Fortress of Solitude. This is a power that Superman nor any other Kryptonian traditionally have. The Super Kronos are also teleporting around trying to trap Superman. And then he does something that they cannot do. He teleports and create illusions of himself all around the supervillains, all around the Fortress of Solitude. So they don't know which Superman is the real Superman. I think this could be... I don't think this is a power. I think this is part of the the Fortress of Solitude. I think he's using some tech from the Fortress of Solitude to create illusions of himself. So the teleportation is his power, and the fake Superman are the illusions that are created by the fortress of solitude i think it's a, a combination of both it, essentially on superman's home turf he is most powerful because he has access to his tech so the the criminals are surrounded by these illusions so they, they'll try to swipe at an illusion it'll disappear or it'll they one of them they were able to free solid for some reason because it's weird because it's supposed to be an illusion but they 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 um they they miss they they they're not getting the real superman even lois is 
is fooled by one of the illusions. And then the real Superman, he captures Zod because Zod is by one of the Superman illusions and he doesn't act quickly enough. And Superman grabs him. He got, he has him in a nice, uh, it's not really a chokehold, but it, it's a, he got, he has him in a nice submission move. Good, good Superman. You learned something from somewhere. But then, you know, they they capture Lois and they threaten to basically pull Lois, like Nam and Ursa capture Lois. They threaten to pull Lois apart if they don't let go of General Zod. So Superman has to let him go. And then um, Lex Luthor has a proposition. Lex Luthor is actually, he, he's, he realizes that he's in and over his head a long time ago. So he goes and proposes that he could help Superman. So, so they concoct a plan where Superman tells Lex, okay, you you get him in that chamber. And if you get him in that chamber, it'll take away their powers. This, this is the same chamber that Superman lost his powers. And then Lex immediately tells the supervillains. So this, the villains force Superman to go into the chamber because they have captured Lois Lane. So he's in the chamber, see red light all around in a similar fashion that you've seen it the first time when Superman's powers are taken away. The red sunlight and the criminals that seem unaffected by this light because it's supposed to be inside the chamber. But Lex realizes that there is something not right. There's something afoot that's going on because the light seems to be outside the chamber. Superman steps out. Zod gives him his famous line, kneel before Zod. Superman kneels. He grabs Zod's hands. He proceeds to crush it. And Zod has no powers. Superman still has all his powers. And the the red sunlight radiation was on the outside of the chamber. And the chamber was actually protecting Superman, who was pretending to be affected by the radiation, but he was not. So um Nam, not not being all that wise, he tries to fly and he ends up jumping into an abyss and he presumably falls to his death. Superman pushes Zod, presumably falls to his death, and um, Lois Lane hits Ursa, and Ursa falls to her death because the Fortress of Solitude is very dangerous. There are no handrails. There, there are just places in the Fortress of Solitude where you can fall to your death, and I guess that's just how Superman built it. Superman can't fall, so what does he care? But if he brings visitors there, maybe he should have a mechanism that you know, have some guardrails or something. So in the, in the trivia, I'll mention this, but uh, there, there's a version where they don't fall to their deaths, but I prefer to think that they fell to their death. If it's not on the film, then as far as I'm concerned, that's what happened. They, they had a Disney death because that's how Disney normally kills their villains. They, they fall from a great height. That, that's how a lot of PG rated film villains uh, fall, that, that's how a lot of them die. They fall to their death. So this is, this is, I well, let's not say it's a Disney death. Let's call it a PG death. And people are always upset about uh, Man of Steel, how how Superman vis- viciously kills General Zod. But I'm here to tell you that Superman kills General Zod in every version that they meet. There's a version in the, there's a version of the story in the comics where Superman kills General Zod and his companions, his two companions. There's, there's Superman 2, there's Man of Steel. I'm pretty sure there are other versions of where Superman kills 
General Zod. And it's always because the the entire world is at stake. Probably not as necessary in Superman 2. This is the least necessary version of him killing General Zod. When he did it in the comics, it was a book written by John Byrne. It was where he was on another dimension or another uh, universe. And the criminals had already caused devastation on the earth that they had taken over. And they had actually destroyed the planet earth because they were so vengeful. They destroyed the planet earth and it was barren. And so the Superman from the main universe, he was over there with criminals. And what he did was he released green kryptonite on them to kill them because for one thing, and it was kind of weird for him to do that too because Superman had defeated them and he was able to take away their powers but Zod had warned we'll find a way to get our powers back and then we're going to go to your universe and we're going to destroy your earth too so Superman decided that since he was the last presence of justice on this barren planet that it was up to him to administer justice to these three criminals who destroyed an entire world so he found he had a box of their version of green kryptonite it didn't affect him because he was not from that dimension and he opened it up on them and he killed them and then afterwards he felt really bad about it and decided that from now on superman shouldn't kill anybody but that was that was a comic book version of superman killing zod and of course everybody's seen them in uh man of steel so i in almost every version that I've seen, there's probably other versions that I haven't seen, but I'll, so I'll say in most versions, Superman kills Zod. I don't see why anybody's upset about it. He killed him in Superman 2 for far much less because Zod didn't actually do anything to anybody after he became ruler. He didn't demand anything of anybody. He didn't go around changing world governments or enslaving people. He He basically just sat in a White House. The U.S. government could have literally built another White House right beside the White House that Zod occupied and and continued to run the United States at, as they had been doing with um, General Zod as the pretend leader of the planet Earth. So anyways, that that was uh, that was Superman, too. That, that was basically the end of the movie. And the, I. I I really, I really like this movie. In, in spite of the corniness and the cheesiness that this movie represents, back when I watched it, when I was a child, I, this to me, this movie was serious. Like a heart attack. This was the most serious and most profane uh, of the movies that I could have watched back in those times. Now, seeing it with grown-up eyes, I can see the campiness of it. But back then, it, it was like I, it, it felt like a, I felt like I was watching a movie like. A few good men, or, <laughs> or or an officer and a gentleman. It could have been any of those movies. I I would treat it with the same respect. So that's it for our favorite parts, and now we're gonna go to the trivia. And now here we are at the trivia provided to us by IMDb. Richard Donner claims that he was fired from Superman 2 because of the pettiness and greed of the Salkins. And this is pretty much what the public, as well as the cast and crew of the movie, thinks, too. But the Salkins have a different story. They say that they offered Richard Donner the director's seat again for Superman 2, but Donner made a demand that the producer, Perry Spiegler, be fired from 
to re- for him to return. Spiegler reportedly fought with Donner about going over budget and going over schedule often on the set of Superman from 1978 to the point where Donner felt that he could not work with him anymore. But unfortunately, Spiegler was one of the original people along with the Salkins who spearheaded the project in the first place. They did not feel that they could let him go. So instead of acquiescing to Donner, they moved forward without him. So technically, if that's true, that wouldn't be a firing. That would be a breakdown of negotiations. Gene Hackman did not return to do reshoots for the second film. All of his scenes were originally filmed by Richard Donner. Other scenes were shot by the new director that required Hackman used a lookalike and a voice impersonator to add lines, any lines that they needed. During one take of the shot in which Lois punches Ursa, Margot Killer, Margot Kidder accidentally punched Sarah Douglas and knocked her unconscious. Wow. Marco Kidder has she's she's packing. She's she's packing. She's got some guns. That that's wild. On August 1st, 1987, a television a television spot for the film was the first commercial ever aired on MTV. Margot Kidder was very unhappy during filming as her marriage to Thomas McGuinn was ending. She missed original director Richard Donner and was aware that she was being very well paid to do a small amount of work. In a 1981 interview with Rolling Stone, she recalled that for several weeks, I sat in my dressing room, listened to music, read The Great Shark Hunt and Orwell, and a lot of French literature, wrote letters, worked on a screenplay, went through the divorce, and every so often, I went on the set and said a line like, Oh, Superman, Superman. That's, that's pretty funny. As I mentioned earlier, Eve Testmacher disappeared from the storyline after she and Lex Luthor leave the Fortress of Solitude, and her absence from the rest of the movie is never explained. This is due to Valerie Perrin, Perrin's, Perrin, oh shoot, I forgot how to pronounce his name. This is due to Valerie Perrin's scenes being filmed by Richard Donner, who was fired from the, uh, from, from the sequel before completion. Tom Makowitz was hired to oversee the script. Originally written by Mario Puzo for Superman 1987, I'm sorry, 1978, which was made to be, which, which was to be made simultaneously with this movie. McKenzie Makowitz, oh, I almost said it wrong again. Makowitz eliminated most of the camp elements Puzo added to the original draft and went ahead with the filmmaker's decision to keep the storyline's religious allusions, specifically Jor-El, God cast Zod. Satan from Krypton, Heaven, Gerald's speech as he and Laura say goodbye to Kal-El. The son becomes the father and the father the son. A ship in the form of a star that brings Kal-El to Earth, the star of Bethlehem. Kal-El comes up to a couple unable to have children. How we prayed and prayed the good Lord to see fit to give us a child. Clark Kent travels to the wilderness to find out who he really is and what he has to do. Not much is known about Jesus during his middle years. And you must live as one of them, but always hold in your heart the pride of your special heritage. They can be a great people, Kalal. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show them the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good. I have sent them you, my only son. 
So this is actually trivia for Superman, the first movie, but it's applicable to Superman 2 as the portion where he loses, he gives up his power for Lois Lane. In 1984, ABC television broadcast the film used over 30 minutes of footage deleted from the theatrical release, almost all directed by Richard Donner. The ABC scenes include Superman flying past the Concord intended for the first film, extra dialogue between Luthor and Otis in jail, extra dialogue between Luthor and Eve flying to and within the Fortress of Solitude, Eve referring to Eve Tessmacher, the death of the young boy trying to escape East Houston, Idaho, the souffle, the scenes between Superman and Lois, nearly 15 minutes of extra footage with Gene Hackman included a pivotal scene in the fortress where Luthor begs forgiveness from Superman. While these scenes were included in the Australian theatrical release, subsequent television screenings there had them deleted. So this is crazy because, as I said earlier, this is the ver- this is the version of Superman that I've seen because I up until now I've only seen I've only watched the television version. Not not I, they probably had an HBO version, but I think the HBO version or the the cable version had the theatrical cut. I've only seen the television cut of this movie. This is probably maybe the third time I've seen Superman too. So. Yeah, I'm not missing these scenes, but it's funny how because I remember specifically the souffle scene where Superman helps Lois Lane make a souffle in the Fortress of Solitude. He uses his heat vision, which kind of creates a dimple in the middle of the souffle because that's where that's where he's pointing his heat vision at. And then she tells him to stop when the souffle is done because she says never overcook souffle. So just just wild. I remember all of that, which I, I don't know if if we ever see that version of again. So according to Sarah Douglas in Japan, her scene of Ursa killing the astronaut by kicking him in his groin was cut due to their sensitive, their sensitivity of a woman being so dominant. So in in the Japanese version, they don't have that with him kicking him off into space. John Williams didn't compose the music for Superman 2, and there are two conflicting stories regarding his departure. The first is when Williams was shown the rough cuts of the film by Richard Lester, he decided he could not no longer commit to the project based on the direction it had taken and because Richard Donner had just been fired. He bowed out at the point and ref- at that point and refused to compose the score. Ken Thorne, another Oscar-winning composer for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, from 1966 was enlisted at that point to take over the composition duties for the movie. The second was that Williams did not return as composer due to scheduling commitments with Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back from 1980, and Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. However, he granted the Salkins permission to use his original theme and even recommended composer Ken Thorne, a personal friend of Williams, to compose the film score. So I don't know what the real story is, but it's probably somewhere in the middle. Apparently, Richard Lester had to reshoot a large volume of the film to gain a sole director credit rather than just shoot the remainder of the Richard Donner version scenes to fill in the gaps. This is why there is a portion of duplicate alternate version of certain of certain sequences and scenes in one director's version not appearing in the script of the other version rather than two alternate ends of one combined source of shot material. 
Hence why the Donner and Lester cuts are radically different, yet confusingly similar. So um, Lester wanted the sole director cut. And you, you can't really share director cuts. You can only uh, director credits. Like you can only share if you're actually related. Like if you're a brother and sister or siblings, you know, bro- two brothers or two sisters, you can share director credit. But you can't do it in any other capacity. So if he had just finished a film, then he might have gotten assistant director credit or he might have gotten producer credit, but he would not have gotten director credit. So he wanted that director credit. So he reshot most of the film, which is ironic because the main reason that Richard Donald was fired because he was going over budget. So he's now he's spending more money after Richard Donald was fi- after Richard Donald was fired than if they would have just let Richard Donner finish the movie. According to Sarah Douglas and Jack O'Halloran, they did not get along with Christopher Reeve. In fact, Douglas said she had more fun working with Gene Hackman than any other actor from the first two Superman films. What's interesting is that I seen a video on YouTube with uh, Jack O'Halloran talking about uh, how Christopher Reeve was kind of taking his role as Superman way too seriously if you see Jack O'Halloran, especially in that movie, he's he's a large man. And, you know, you don't want to buck up against a, a large dude, right? So apparent from Jack O'Halloran's perspective, that's kind of what Christopher Reeve was doing. And Jack O'Halloran kind of had to jack up Christopher Reeve to kind of humble him a little bit and put him in his place because, you know, Jack is not going to put up with that sort of nonsense. And um so that's on YouTube somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where you can find it. I, I've seen it a while ago, so I don't have a, a link to it. But that that's an interesting look into it. And I think Christopher Reeve probably, for his part, took his role a, a little too seriously, I think. When Superman saves the boy at Niagara Falls, a woman in the crowd of onlookers can be heard saying, what a nice man. Of course he's Jewish. Superman's parent, quote unquote, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were the children of Jewish immigrants, and many fans and scholars have long argued that they created the character in 1938 as a Jewish-American response to the Nazi idealism of Friedrich Nietzsche's Ubermensch, a term that can be translated as Superman. Superman, Superman, like thousands of Jewish refugees, were fleeing Europe at the time and was an alien from a war-torn place. Also, His origin story bears no small resemblance to that of Moses, and his original name, Kalel, contains El, the original name of the chief Canaanite Hebrew deity. I don't know if you kind of pay attention to a lot of Hebrew names. There is El, E-L, or Al, A-L in it, like Michael, Sarah, Noah, or Elijah, Ariel. All all these, or Hannah, all these names have uh, either... E-L or A-L, and they're all, or A-H, and they're all in reference to to the Lord. Continuing on, in July 2021, actor Jack O'Halloran, that, that we talked about earlier, who played Kryptonian villain, Kryptonian villain Non, revealed that Superman didn't kill him, Zod, and Ursa at the end of the film. He told Yahoo Entertainment, entertainment that director Richard Donner filmed an extra scene that confirmed all three villains survived and were carted off to a terrestrial prison instead of the Phantom Zone. But that scene was cut from both 
the, the theatrical version, which was completed by Richard Lester after Donner departed the film under acrimonious circumstances, as well as Superman II, the Donner cut from 2006. The 2006 version of the movie that reconstituted his original vision. He also added that he regrets that some viewers have spent 40 years believing that Superman killed his fellow Kryptonians and took a pointed dig at Man of Steel from 2013 for further perpetuating that impression. The beauty of Superman and Superman 2 is the fact that Superman wasn't flying around killing villains. He was putting them in jail. There was an American way of law and order about it. That's what's wrong with the movies they did afterwards. They got darker and darker and darker. Those first two films still stand up all these years later, you know? So this is what he said. But here's the thing. Like I said earlier, if it's not on film, then it didn't happen. So it's not on any version of either film. So as far as I'm concerned, Superman killed Zod. And he kills Zod almost every single time. It, Here's the thing. He's saying that, you know, the American way is a car. He, well, for one thing, Superman doesn't go around killing villains. These were super villains and they were threatening the entire planet Earth. So he was basically defending the planet at that point. Just like he got his powers back, these villains could have gotten their powers back and could have, and they combined, they all three had the power to destroy the planet. So, and 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 even in Man of Steel, he wasn't his mission wasn't to kill Zod. His mission was to just stop Zod, but Zod wasn't going to stop. So if you recall in Man of Steel, he had well, Superman had Zod and basically in a in a submission move, but Zod still had his heat vision and he was he was aiming it like he was he was intending to kill everybody that he could with his heat vision because that was the, the last thing that the, the last power that he had. So so Superman killed him because he didn't want Zod to kill any more people. It was either those people dying or Zod dying. And, and Superman made the call and people are upset about that. And I don't understand why. So they're all they're all good with, uh, you know, the police killing villains in the movies like. O'Halloran is saying that, you know, that it, the American way is for people to go to jail. But that's have you watched these movies? It, villains aren't going to jail in these movies. Villains are getting shot. Right. And, and a lot of times it's law enforcement or the military that's doing the shooting and it's doing the killing. So and they they make it as justifiable as possible. But the problem is that in real life, it's almost never justified. It's It's like people are getting killed on the regular for, you know. Like even in the this same movie that I alluded to earlier, you know, you had the police that come out and the first thing they do is they threaten three ordinary people from their perspective. They threaten three ordinary people with a shotgun for just walking in the road. That's crazy. You threaten them with a shotgun and, and a lot of that is still going on today. So I think that uh, Jack is has a. Uh, a very romanticized view of law and order in the United States. And we have to dispel ourselves of, of this notion of what our law enforcement is doing and, and open our eyes to the reality of what's happening. I'll continue on. As previously mentioned, Ursa is based on the comic character Feora. I guess that's how you say it. They are both man-hating killers with an aptitude for martial arts. non 
was an original character created for the movie. Both he and Ursula were introduced into the comic canon by Richard Donner during his run on Action Comics in 2007. There are two controversial scenes in this movie that fanboys, film geeks, and critics have complained about for years. The first is Superman's amnesia-inducing kiss. Oh, I forgot to talk about that. Fans complain this was a do <laughs> Deus Ex Machina type ending and a cheat because this Superman skill was never mentioned in the comics. In fact, it actually appeared once or twice, but it was very obscure. The second controversial scene was the one where Superman removes a strange plasticky form of his S insignia, which magically grows as he throws it at Non, covering him and then subduing him for a second before vanishing altogether. Fans and critics criticized the scene for being random, not taken from the comics, and also pointless since it, did not, it didn't do anything meaningful to Non. The scene was parodied in an episode of Family Guy from 1999. So, like I said, I really like the Essencia. For some reason, this blurb that I've picked up from IMDb, it doesn't mention the teleportation that both Superman and the super criminals do. That's also not a power that Superman has. But in the history of Superman comics, Superman has been around for almost 100 years. His powers have changed considerably since from when he was first conceived to where we see him today. He has a base power set, but aside from that base power set, I'm talking flight, super strength, and vulnerability. That's like his base and his all of his vision powers, like heat vision, his ability to blow cold wind, uh, his x-ray vision. Those are his base powers. But then he get extra powers that he gets depending on what the story calls for. You know, the he Superman basically gains power depending on what the plot requires. If you've been reading Superman lately, he has gained a new power aside from his x-ray vision. He has now the ability to expel all of his heat powers at once. He basically could turn himself into a kind of heat bomb. And when he does this, he expels so much of his power that he drains himself. You think you can think of Superman as a type of solar battery. So once he does this, he it takes he has no powers and he has, he has to soak some sunlight in order to regain his powers. But um, as I said, he's, he's gaining powers all the time. So I'm not, even though in, in, in a lot of, some of his powers or some of his abilities uh, have, or some of his characteristics actually come from other sources that are not in the comics. For example, kryptonite was famously created on the radio show because there is a Superman radio show. There was an actor playing Superman. He needed a vacation, but they didn't want to stop the show. So they created Kryptonite so that another actor can moan as Superman while the original Superman actor can take a vacation. So, and I'm pretty sure that there have been other media that has created powers for Superman. So I'm not mad at the new powers. I'm not mad at the the super uh, forget-me-not kiss. I'm not mad at that, really. I'm not mad at the S insignia because it's not a power, it's a tool, and I, I thought it was really cool. And um, I'm not mad at uh, at the... It's only when his powers get super cheesy, like his ability to shoot micro-Superman from his fingers. He can. That's something that he used to be able to do. So finally, an, another fun fact... Despite Jack O'Halloran's 
six foot six height. He wore lifts or platform shoes to be more imposing. And it's very obvious when you watch the movie that he's wearing platform shoes. But, you know, it was it was right after the 70s. It was it was actually in the 70s when when a lot of this was filmed. So, yeah, it's platform shoes are fun. So that's it for the IMDb trivia. And now we're going to talk about what the critics thought. And now here we are on the critics thoughts segments to see what the critics thought. The critics on Rotten Tomatoes gave it 82%. Audience score is 76%. And on IMDb reviews, it has a 6.8 out of 10 score. So let's do this. Patrick Gibbs of Daily Telegraph UK wrote, A lost, far good intentions. The new mixture turns out to be as much before as before, which I didn't rate very highly. So he was not precisely pleased with this film. Um, and if you didn't like Superman, obviously you're not going to like Superman 2. Lorna Laurie wrote, uh, well, Lorna Laurie from Geek Girl Authority wrote, Kneel before Zod, y'all. This is the best Superman movie of all time. Now, I'm not going to go as far as, as to say that this is the best Superman movie of all time, but it is definitely a very good Superman movie. Mike Macy from Gone with the Twins wrote, It's a matching continuation, even if it's an uninspired one, whose stale direction wasn't dismissed in later years, prompting fire director Donner to release his own cut. Which I don't know. I don't think Donner had released his cut because of the previous movie or what the previous movie looked like. I think he still wanted to see his vision um, fulfilled because I, I haven't... I haven't seen the Donner Cut, but I am not exactly sure if it's better than the movie that was finally released. I think that Donner wanted to see his vision come true because it's, it's like he wanted to finish the movie, but he didn't want to work with certain people. He had a personality conflict and maybe his pride got in the way. So that's why he didn't finish the movie. It's not. And the reason that he put out his own version was because not because of anything in the previous version it is because he wanted to see his own vision through finally we have Derek Malcolm from Guardian Dick Lester Superman 2 makes a groaningly slow start but finally ends up a better movie than Superman 1 of course it has to be because more of the same would look a bit secondhand another time around so those are some of the critical reviews of Superman 2 so finally, Superman 2 is, as of this recording, available on HBO Max. That's it for today. We are going to check out a completely different movie. I believe, I don't know what that movie is as of this time, but keep your eye on social media and I will let you know what the next movie is going to be. So follow us on Twitter or TikTok at Backlick Cinema or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast for updates. Don't forget that you can contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com. And one last time, if you like the show, then please help us grow. To do, to do this, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, Pod, Chaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. 
Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding. Up, up, and away!